So in Romans 8.29, maybe you remember um, from that great chapter, we learn that uh, those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So God's whole work in our lives as believers is to make us more like Jesus. And think about it. When we consider Jesus, you know, he's so loving. He's so sacrificial. He's so generous. I mean, like even when he's tired, he's nice. I I mean, I'm sick and I'm not nice. And I'm not a very good patient. And I always think about Jesus. He's so generous. He's so nice. I told you this before, but I remember I'm walking my dog, who's now uh, wherever bad dogs go. And... um, And I was, I was walking her and I was thinking about the restraint of Jesus, just how he just, you know, he didn't react to his persecutors. He didn't react to the Pharisees. You know, Paul, when he was slapped by the high priest, he says, God's going to get you, you whitewashed sepulcher. You know, but Jesus didn't do that. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, you were so restrained. You're so wonderfully restrained. And seriously, I was like having this glory moment when these two men are riding their bikes side by side. And the one looks at me and goes, woman, you curb your dog. Like that, my dog, we were in our lane. He was riding in our walking lane. And I said to him, curb your mouth, like really loudly. And he says, shut up. And so I said, you shut up, you know, and here I am in glory thinking about the restraint of Jesus only to realize that I, I, I need some more conforming into that image. And, and when we look at Jesus, he's so restrained. He always has the right answer. He's so wise. And then his faithfulness, you know, the disciples forsook him, but he would not forsake his disciples. In fact, he stood up and said, I'm here in the garden of Gethsemane. Let these go. He protected those, those faithless disciples. And then he's so gracious. He's so gracious with, with Peter and Peter's mistakes, even taking Peter aside after Peter had denied him three times and saying, you know what, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Restoring Peter. Oh, the grace and mercy. And who doesn't want to be like that? Who doesn't want to be like Jesus? Paul said his main desire in Philippians chapter three was to become like Jesus. This is what he said. I want to do. I want to be like Jesus. I I, I want to be conformed to his death and to his resurrection. I I just want to be just so in and like Jesus. Now, as we study Romans 9 through 11, it almost seems like, you know, Paul, what happened? We were talking about faith. It was like so good. And now, you know, we're talking about, you know, election and we're talking about the Jews and, you know, what happened here? But in actuality, Paul is still talking about faith. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul talked about the necessity of faith. In Romans 4 through 7, Paul talked about the superiority of faith. And in Romans chapter 8, he talked about the reward of faith. But what is he doing right now? He is showing what Israel's relationship is to faith. Because this would have been a question. Well, if we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, what about those Jews? You know, why did God bother giving them the law and everything that he's done for them? You know, and and what about all God's promises all throughout the Old Testament concerning the Jews? 
And, you know, honestly, I'll, I've heard people say to me, oh, God's got a different way for the Jews. That's the way you know, for us Christians, but he's got a different way for the Jews. No, he doesn't. Peter, who, by the way, was Jewish, stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, there is no other name named under heaven by which we must be saved. And guess who he was talking to? Jews. He was telling his own people, you cannot be saved any other way but through the name of Jesus. Jesus also said in John, if you hate me, um, he who hates me hates my father also. And, And Jesus talked about the impossibility of hating him and loving God. It just cannot be done. There is no other way. So what about, what about the Jews? So Paul begins by discussing how deeply he cares about the Jews. And as we see Paul's love for the Jews, we see the heart of Jesus. Because Paul says that he loves these people. He could almost wish himself accursed for his own countrymen. It's not just that he understands uh, their unbelief. Remember, he was a zealot. He was zealous for his people. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He not only is a Jew, he relates to these Jews. He understands them. He also at one point had been an antagonist of Jesus Christ and the believers in Jesus Christ. But then he also understands God's um, gifts or investment in the Jews, his gifts to the Jews, God's love for his people. We read in the Gospel of Luke two times, um, chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, and Luke 19, 14, 41, sorry, 41, a little dyslexic there. Luke 19, 41 through 44, as Jesus laments over Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he says, how many times, like a mother hen, I would have brought you under my wings. And then again in chapter 19, he said, if only you knew the peace that was available to you in this your day, that is hidden from your eyes. And at that point, we hear that we read in Luke that he actually weeps over Jerusalem. He is crying because of his love for these people. Paul also understands that God chose the Jews. He chose them of all of the tribes and kindreds and people of the earth. He chose this nation to show his greatness, to show his love, to show his compassion, to show his character. He also understands that God has purposes their purposes for, for these, these Jews. And, and the purposes that we read, the ultimate purpose of God for the Jews is glorification. We read this throughout Isaiah. Uh, even in Jeremiah 29, 11, the scripture that you know, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. God has always had good plans for Israel. And Paul knows that. Paul also is looking at God's faithfulness to his promises, knowing that God's word cannot fail, that everything that God has promised to the Jews will take place. It will happen. In fact, I believe that every promise that you read about that God gave the Jews will be completely realized during the millennium. And that is the reason for that thousand year reign. But Paul's love for the Jews is remarkable. 
seriously, even though he is Jewish. It's remarkable because it was, it was to these same unbelieving Jews that had persecuted him, had taken him before the magistrates who had slandered him, who had hounded him from city to city, who tried to spoil his work, who tried to corrupt the churches that he established and tried to assassinate him. But Paul says of these same Jews in verse 2 of chapter 9 that he had great sorrow and continual grief. In other words, Paul didn't want vengeance or retribution. Now that's the heart of Jesus, isn't it? Because I love vengeance. I'll be really honest with you. I like the whole idea. That's why I watch true crime shows. You know, I just love it when they go death penalty. I'm sorry. I'm one of those. Well, you killed that girl and, you know, maimed that person. (laughs) Anyway, Mm. Paul grieved over their unbelief. He wasn't willing to give up on them. The people of God, the Jews, were continually on his mind. In fact, in the epistles that he wrote to these different churches, he talked about the collection that he was taking up for the Jews in Jerusalem, those who had been impoverished by the famine and by the, um, the uprisings in Jerusalem. And he was always looking for a way to get back to Jerusalem. Remember how you read, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem first, and I've got to get to Jerusalem. I want to be there at the feast. And whenever he ministered in a city, where was the first place he went? To the synagogues. Why? Because he first wanted to give his own countrymen, the Jews, the gospel. And Paul says he could almost wish himself a curse from Christ if it would bring Israel to Jesus. Now, this is the heart like Jesus. Because Jesus willingly became that curse. In Matthew one twenty one, we read, that he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save the Jews from their sins and then to save the Gentiles. Instead of cursing the Jews for their unbelief, Paul understood Jesus' heart in coming and becoming that curse. Jesus' love, Jesus' sacrificial love, Jesus' self-denial in taking off the ropes of heaven, becoming a man because, because he wanted to save his people and he knew he had to become a curse. Paul himself endured so much in order to take the gospel of salvation to the Jews. We read that he endured rejection, stoning. This is all from Second Corinthians chapter 11 if you want to be uplifted. Whippings, prison, riots, hatred, slander. Then he talks about perils and hunger. We're talking severe discomfort. He was a night and a day in the sea. He suffered shipwreck. He had hard travel. And you see that Paul was willing to be uncomfortable and sacrifice in order to get the gospel, even if they rejected him, to his people, the Jews. How was it that Paul had a heart like Jesus? How did he get that heart? I believe as we look at chapter 9, we see how Paul cultivated a heart like Jesus. And the first thing that we see is he had an appreciation of all of God's gifts. So in verses 4 through 5, he enumerates some of those gifts to Israel. 
First of all, he says the choosing. Now in Ephesians chapter one, we're told that we're chosen. We are chosen by God. But Paul realized that God chose Israel, adopted these people to be his own, took them unto himself. Paul talks about how God revealed his glory and blessings to Israel. God made covenants with Israel. He made these agreements. And Israel was so blessed. I, I've been reading, um, actually, because I'm sick, I decided to do Leviticus in one day with all the notes. That's what I did all day yesterday, Leviticus. I told Brian I would, and I did, and it only took me from nine till three o'clock in the afternoon. But as I was, as <laughs> maybe that's why I'm still sick. But you know, as I was studying Leviticus, what I saw is God is saying to these people, I want to dwell among you. This is all about so my presence can be with you. Moses begged in Exodus, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, don't deliver us from here. I don't want to go anywhere. And God said, but this is the price for my presence, Moses. And what you've got is Leviticus. And, and that's how holy God was. And, and they're all provisions for protection on Israel so God could dwell with them. But Jesus is our protection. Jesus is our covering so that we can be with God. But anyway, sorry, that's not in my notes, obviously. So God made these covenants or these agreements. He, he, he married Israel. He, he went into this, this covenant where he made promises to, to Israel as he did to Abraham and said, I'll be faithful to these. And then God entrusted Israel with the law, the written standard of righteousness. He said, here's the standard. Then God gave Israel the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priest, the sacrifice, the feast. He gave this to Israel. He entrusted Israel with these things. And when we read about the tabernacle and the priest and the sacrifice and the feast, the feasts were to be celebrated the sacrifices were to make atonement or have a relationship with God. The priests and their whole outfit spoke of beauty and glorification. And the tabernacle itself spoke of God's presence with them. And, and all of these things also foreshadowed Jesus. How Jesus would come and from the outside, like the tabernacle, it would look like goat skin. It would look normal, like everybody else's tent in the camp of Israel. But on the inside, it would be silver and gold and the colors of royalty. It just, just like Jesus came as a man in this tent and he looked ordinary, but inside resided the glory of God. But not only that, God gave Israel the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God gave Israel the Messiah. Verse five, according to the flesh, Christ, the Messiah came who is overall Eternally blessed God, amen. God, when he took on the flesh of mankind, he took on the flesh of a Jew. Now that should, that should elevate Jews in our heart and our mind. If God, when he chose of all the tribes of the earth, chose to become a Jew. Remember the son of God was born in Israel. That should bring Israel up in our respect not only that, but God, the son, ministered in Israel. As we went to Israel last year, um, we, we came around and we went to this lookout point and it overlooked the Galilee. It was this incredible view. And the reason we stopped is um, 
we had been driving for about two hours and you know, you're kind of in like this desert and everything. And we came around the corner and all of a sudden we, we saw the Galilee and we all screamed. There are five of us women and, and our driver got scared. So he pulled over. And it was a lookout point and we jumped out and we were like jumping up and down as we looked at the Galilee. And we're thinking, Jesus, you walked across that Galilee. I mean, seriously, you're looking at it going, my Jesus. You know, he walked on that Galilee. My Jesus calmed the storms on that sea. There's no other sea. It's not like you can go, you know, to Bass Lake and go, yeah, I remember, you know, three years ago when I was at. No, it's here on the Galilee. This is the place Jesus made an investment into Israel. When the son of God's feet touched earth, they touched the land of Israel. The son of God shed his blood in Israel. It was the ground of Israel. Calvary, right outside of Jerusalem, that drank up the blood that fell from the cross. God made an investment in that land by his own blood. And God the Son rose from the dead in Israel. You can go and you can look at his tomb. He's not in there. But that you can see the place where he laid. This is his investment. So Paul appreciated all that God had done for his people, for himself. He saw these gifts. Next, Paul apprehended faith, verses six through nine. Now, let me say this. There are a lot of Christians who don't understand the whole concept of faith. They're still trying to earn God's favor by their good works, how much they read their Bible, how much they go to church, how nice they are to other people. There are other people who think it's, you know, they make faith something superstitious. Like if I believe enough, believe enough. You know, if I believe God's going to answer this prayer enough, then God will do it. But that, that is not what faith is. Faith, faith is believing in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the end. That's the objective of faith is that Jesus is who he said he is, did what he said he did, and only Jesus can save us. He is the object and objective of faith. So not only had Paul come to faith in Christ Jesus, he had received it for himself. He knew the transforming power that he said that everything else was like rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. He realized that it was not about works or about the keeping of the law, that it was not even about heritage because this is what he says. Again, going back to Philippians chapter three, All of those things from his heritage to his education to his zeal for the law, all of them meant nothing compared to simply believing and coming to know the truth that Jesus Christ was the son of God, the Messiah who had come into the world, died for his sins and rose again from the dead. In verse seven, he says of chapter nine, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. For in Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. So we understood that faith has nothing to do with heritage. It's not about who you're related to. If your grandma was saved, that's great. But what about you? If your grandpa was saved, that's great. But what about you? We have to personalize this faith. And that's what Paul understood. Faith is about God's promises, not about our performance. It's not about works or efforts. 
It's not about keeping the law because no one is able to keep the law. You know, it's interesting when you look at Israel because the Sabbath was at the end of the week. Six days shall you labor, and then the seventh was a day of rest. But in Christ Jesus, what happens? Because early believers all celebrated Sunday. Why? Because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it changed everything. But you see, faith is this way. Faith begins with a day of rest. Faith begins with finding our rest in Jesus Christ. And then that gives us the energy to work for six days. And then we start our week with resting in Jesus The Jews, you see, for six days, they performed, they performed, they performed, and then they could never really keep the Sabbath because they they weren't over the perform. They could never rest. But our our time, our Sabbath, begins with Jesus. And out of that, we work. I hope that made sense because for me, it just like totally blessed me. Especially since I'm sick, right? So I'm like, yeah, I'm like taking all those Sabbaths I skipped. So faith excludes performance. Faith is about believing and receiving what God has done for us and, and wanting, desiring what God has done. Saying, Lord, I want that. And he tells us that it was Isaac, not Ishmael, that was the son of promise. You see, Abraham didn't just have one son. He had two sons. But Ishmael, Abraham's older son, who should have been the heir, was not the heir. Why? Because he was born of natural means. Anyone can have an Ishmael. That's the performance. That's my works. That's what I can do. And it gives birth to Ishmael, which is interesting because we read of Ishmael that he'd be at war with everyone always. And isn't that true? When we make it about performance, don't we become at war with everybody else? Because it becomes a competition, right? Our works always lead to competition and comparison. So he was born by natural means, but Isaac was born because of God's promise. He was a total miracle. Isaac was something only God could do. Only God could could help an 80-year-old woman conceive and give birth. Only God. You don't believe it? You try it. Next, Paul accepted God's will and ways. So we've got first that he appreciated. Next, he apprehended. He understood faith and what it's about. But next, he accepted God's will and ways. In Romans 8, Paul spoke of God's foreknowledge. Maybe you remember that who he foreknew, he, he predestined, who he predestined, he called, who he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. But everything begins with God's foreknowledge. In other words, that God knows the end from the beginning. As he says in Isaiah, I know the things that are going to happen. God um, refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. God sees everything, the full spectrum. When my dad used to talk about uh, the foreknowledge of God, some of you probably remember this. He loved to talk about the Rose Bowl parade. I mean, when God, oh, and my dad would start towards the foreknowledge of God, I go, here comes the Rose Bowl parade. 
every time. But this is the thing about my dad. You never knew who he was going to proclaim the winner. Yeah, like, you know, one year it was the Kraft macaroni and cheese. But he'd just make up whoever the winner was as he was telling it. But he would say, when you're on the ground, you only get one float at a time, right? And, there, and depending on where you are is when the, the floats will go by. And he said, but if you're in a helicopter, you can see who's at the front and who's at the end. And, and it's no surprise to you. You see the whole lineup because you're up above, so you can see it from beginning to end. God is outside of time and space, and he's looking down, and he sees from beginning to end. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the choices that are going to be made. So based on that foreknowledge, according to his foreknowledge, we're told in verses 10 through 11, and not only this, but when Rebecca had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who called. God predestined and came up with a plan. Remember who he foreknew? He predestined. So God, according to his foreknowledge, he comes up with a plan. And God called those who would receive. God justified the call. So you cannot fully accept God's will and ways until, that you, until you realize God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything that will happen in the future. And he knows everything in the heart of every man and every woman. And now you'll say, well, Cheryl, wait. I thought I was self-determining. You are. Well, you're telling me I was already determined by God. Yes, you are. It's both. You see, you just have to accept it. You see, that doesn't make sense. I don't care. I'm sick. <clears throat> but the truth is, God takes those choices he knows you're going to make. And he uses those choices in his great plan. In the great plan, not only for you individually, but for the great plan for the world corporately. He comes up with a plan. We are self-determining. We are able to make choices that will affect our future. But you see, God acknowledges and respects and even ratifies those choices. He takes those choices that we make and works them together for his ultimate glory, his election or choosing. And Paul goes on to say, God has the right to do whatever he wants. Why? Why does God have the right to do it? Well, he created you. That's a good, that's a good reason. No, you created me. I guess you, you can. He owns the land. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You could do what you want with your land unless you have mean neighbors. But you can pretty much do what you want with your land because it's your land. So, God as creator has the right to do what he wants, but now because of his wisdom about men, because he is so wise, because his ways are the best ways, because of his power, God can do what we can't do. As Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is unlimited in strength and power. And then because of his righteousness, because God always does what is right. Now, it might not seem just. It might not seem right to you. But you know what? It is. You're, you're, you're not seeing the full picture. You know, sometimes I watch Judge Judy. I don't know, just to punish myself. 
But you know, I mean, you'll see people and they'll go, that's not there. You know, when Judge Judy, but Judge Judy is, you know, Judge Judy. She has the right to do whatever she wants. She's the judge and she knows the law and she knows how to apply the law. It might not seem fair, but that's the law. That's why, you know, it's interesting because in Proverbs, it says that the law never seems just to an unrighteous man. Isn't that incredible? I mean, you think about all these guys, you know, mass murder, and then they get the death penalty. They're like, that's not fair, your honor. They didn't know what was happening, and I do. You know, no. God is absolutely just in all he does. And then because of his righteousness and wisdom and power, we read that he chose Jacob over Esau because he knew that Jacob would want the promises. And so what he does, he takes those choices and he uses it to showcase his election or his choosing. So when we look at Esau and Jacob, we see the type of man that God chooses. That he chooses the underling, the, the underdog. He chooses the one with the deficits. He chooses the ones who really can't help themselves. Or when they try, they just make a mess out of it. And so we, we, it showcases his election. Then it's not about works. It's about his goodness. It's about his mercy. It's about what he can do in somebody's life if they'll just give it to him. It it also gives a veracity to his word. Because remember, he told Rebecca while she was still pregnant, not having seen either of the children that would be born, the elder will serve the younger. And, and once they were born and all the promises came true, that's exactly what happened. And so God uses, God uses bad and good, all the things of life to showcase the veracity of his word. Then we see too that God's choosing, God's ways highlight his great mercy and grace because he says to Moses, I will have mercy. And of course, this is from Exodus when he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passed by him and he called out the name of the Lord. He says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And then Paul, looking at that, says, God has the absolute right as God to have compassion on anybody he wants to show mercy. And he shows mercy to those who respond to them. And in his foreknowledge, he knows who those people are who are going to respond to it. And Paul says this, so it is not of him who wills, not man's self-determination completely, nor of him who runs, not by performance, but about God who shows mercy. So God's calling and election is not about man's deservedness, but it's all about what he has done and what he has promised. And then we read part of God's ways that we need to accept. So, you know, we accept God's choices because he knows and he has foreknowledge, but we also accept God's choices because he uses even unbelief for his glory. Verses 17 through 19. Remember how he talked about how God ratifies our decisions because he knows when we're making an eternal decision. 
And so with Pharaoh, we see that, that God kept pressing into Pharaoh. You know, it starts out, you know, it's, it's water to blood. And Pharaoh's like, hey, my magicians can do that. You know, and then it's, and then it's frogs. And I'm sorry, then it's gnats. And then it's frogs. And then it goes to flies. I mean, just beautiful things. But all of these pushing into Pharaoh. And, and what you see, as Paul brings out in chapter 9, you see the long-suffering of God. He just didn't say, well, you're going you're gonna to harden your heart. That's how you're going to always be. So I'm giving up on you. God says, I'm going to show people my mercy. I'm going to show how I press and press and press. I don't give up on any man willingly. But then he says also, since he's going to never believe, I'm going to turn this as an opportunity to show Israel and Egypt how powerful I am, that their gods are nothing, nothing. In fact, he says in on Exodus, I'm going to humiliate their gods. I'm going to show that they're nothing. I'm the only real God. I, I'm going to leave a witness to Egypt that they might know. You see, God was evangelizing Egypt through Israel and through what he was doing with the Pharaoh. So he's using Pharaoh's unbelief to show his power, his grace, because it's just progressive um, pushing on Pharaoh's part, and, and to, to bring Israel into a cohesion as a nation. As he says, even for this same purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. God is able to use unbelief to show his power. God is able to use unbelief to show his person. God is able to use unbelief to show his love for us. And for Israel. And then Paul brings up this, that some would find fault with this. Like, well, wait, if God's just going to do what God's going to do, then I don't really have a choice. But this is where, oh, yes, you do. And God knows that choice you're going to make. God knows your ultimate choice. And God will use whatever choice you make for his glory. This is all Paul's saying. Whatever choice you make, whatever choice those people make out there, God will use those choices for his glory, for his ultimate glory. But the right choice will result in our glorification too. The right choice. You can choose to be a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy. You can choose and God will ratify that choice and use it for his glory. God is the ultimate determiner of what will happen in verses 20 through 24. He is the potter. This is what Paul's saying. Doesn't a potter, doesn't a designer have the power to do whatever he wants with the clay? Why? Because he's a designer, because he's creative, because he knows the vessel that's needed. You know, do we need a vase? Do we need a mixing bowl? What do we need here? And God, according to his wisdom, is able to make that, that vessel whatever he wants out of the clay, to make whatever he wants. The clay has no power really but to yield, to let the potter do what he wants to do. In yielding, if we yield to God, we can become a vessel of a beauty, a vessel of use. As Paul talks to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said we, we can become a vessel that is ready for the master's use. But in resistance... We become marred 
in, in the potter's hand. And, and marred vessels, they were, they were useful too. They were used for shards uh, to scrape mold off in houses. They were used um, to, um, uh, on whips to, to tear up the backs of, of criminals. So there was still use, but it just wasn't a pretty use. And we want to use, be used for pretty purposes, don't we? God is gone, as we talked before, he is the maker of all things, has the right to do whatever he wants. Yet he endures with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. See, he, he kept putting up, he progressively pushed on Pharaoh to let go of the people. Pharaoh had the choice after each, each, after each um, plague to repent, but he didn't. He hardened his heart, and then God ratified that hardness. That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So the right choice can make us the vessel of mercy prepared for glory. God even uses the bad of man for his purposes and glory, but men are still held accountable for their choices. We can accept it or not, but it's a fact. And if we accept it, then we'll begin to cultivate the heart of Jesus in us because we're told that Jesus accepted. What did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. That's, that's a heart that accepts. In fact, Jesus said, Lord, if there's any other way, then let this cut pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, it's that acceptance. Moving on, finally, Paul adhered to God's word. Oh, first of all, wait, one more point on, on acceptance. God, and then Paul goes on to state how God used even the Jews' unbelief at that time. At that time, the Jews' unbelief, even though a remnant was still being saved by faith, those unbelieving Jews, God was using what? To bring the Gentiles into salvation. That's what he said. If the Jews had all believed, then they would have become our evangelists and we'd have to you know, be saved that way. But what God did is he said, okay, since they're rejecting my son, I'm opening up salvation to the whole world. Remember how Jesus told the story of the wedding feast? And he said, those who were invited wouldn't come in. Do you remember the excuses of why they wouldn't come in? This isn't important, but I, I know the excuses. Let's say, see if you do. But one said, oh, I, I can't come because I, I just bought a plot of land. The other one said, well, I just got five oxen and I haven't tried them out yet. And the other one, my favorite, I just married a wife, so I can't come. You know, but they all made excuses why they couldn't come. And, and the master, the, the father of the groom said, you know what, if they won't come, I want you to invite anybody. Go out to the hedges and byways and invite, compel them to come. I love the word compel because it means like grab them by the arm and make them get here. And then he dressed them in, in the wedding clothes. They didn't even have the right clothes. And the father of the groom supplied the right clothing for everyone to wear into the wedding feast. And that's what happened. If those guests had accepted, there wouldn't have been room at the wedding feast for us. But their rejection has resulted in Gentiles being able to come into all the promises 
are originally given to Israel. So right now, this time is called the time of the Gentiles or the dispensation of grace. And that's what we're in. Okay, moving on. Finally, finally, finally. Yes, yes, yes. Finally, Paul had the heart of Jesus because he adhered to God's word. Paul knew the promises of God. Paul believed the promises and word of God. Paul knew that God's word would not and could not fail. And Paul held to the word of God. Paul begins to quote the Old Testament. He'll quote Hosea. He'll quote Isaiah. And it's, it's all to this point. Paul's going to use the word of God as the authenticity or the authority for everything he believes. Everything he believes. The authority behind it is the word of God. Paul will also say the word of God is the perception or the the lens through which he sees all the world events through the word of God. Well, what does the Bible say about this? I remember going out in England. There was a woman who came to this Bible study and I had just come over from England. She gave me a huge Bible and she said, find this friend of mine and give her this huge Bible. And so I called the secretary, who was actually a friend of mine, and said, Emma, find this woman. (laughs) Call this number, and we'll go out to lunch with her. And I remember going out to lunch with her, and I could see that she was determined to make sure that we didn't share Jesus with her. Have you ever been with someone like that? They just, like, keep cutting you off, and you're like, okay, fine, you know, we'll just talk about, I don't know, something else. So as we were talking, she says, you know, I just believe the world's getting better and better and better. And I said, well, you know, if I lived in Parsons Green, I'd probably believe that too, because Parsons Green's really nice, very posh. And she said, really? Well, what do you believe? And I said, I believe what the Bible says. And she goes, well, what does the Bible say? And all of a sudden, she just looked horrified, like, what have I done? I just opened that door. I determined to close. And I began to tell her, because the Bible is the lens through which I see all the world events. And if you're coming to the study of Revelation, you're like, oh my goodness, yes. We can see where everything's going because of the Bible. So it's the perception, but it's also the direction. It's the determiner of where the world is going. It shows you. In fact, Jesus, I was just reading this today in Luke chapter 21. Jesus said these things must take place. There's an imperative there. These things have to happen. This is the way it's going to go. So the Bible is the determiner, but it's also the determiner of our life, how our life will go. We can look at the, we can look at the word of God and go, okay, this is what's going to happen because this is how God did it through Abraham. Okay, this is what's going on in my life. Have you ever had that? Where you're like, I don't know what's going on in my life. And then you open up the word of God and go, that's what's going on in my life. Okay, honestly, I'll be honest with you. Okay, I tend to panic whenever I get sick, like I'm going to die this is going to go into pneumonia because I had pneumonia once. So now, you know, every time I get a cold, I'm like, I don't want pneumonia. And so I'm reading in, in Exodus and in Numbers. And I'm reading about these, you know, these Israelites, right? And they get in the land and they're thirsty and they're like, we're going to die of thirst. And I'm like, oh no, this is me. I'm doing this right now with my cold. Like, I'm going to die of this cold. You know, it's been more than three days. And I'm like, I'm so this person. 
I'm such a complainer, especially when I get sick. I complain about everything when I'm sick. And I mean, like, I got so convicted. One, because Brendan and I are speaking together at the married thing, so I got to start being nice. But it's like, I got so convicted because here's this man who's, who's so nice to me. I look terrible because this is like, this is looking better than I've looked all week long. I'm telling you, there's, you know, no makeup. The hair is like, I don't know, like ready to drill for oil in it. I mean, it's like, you know, and I'm wearing my other glasses. These are my good glasses. I only wear these publicly. So I got my ugly glasses on and, you know, the ones that are like scratched up and stuff like that. Cause I just threw them wherever and where they landed was where they landed and I mean, not, and you know, and of course I'm just wearing like my worst pajamas because they're the only ones I'll trust with my germs. And so, and, and, and he keeps coming home, you know, to this, you know, to the germ factory. And you're like, wow, Lord, I'm such a complainer. And, and I'm so blessed to have a man that comes home even when, maybe because I can't talk. But anyway, um, but it's the determiner. The word is the determiner. It tells you who you are, what station you are, and what God's about to do. So Paul holds to the word of God. He uses Hosea 2.23, and he says, this is what God's doing. I can see it through the word of God, that right now God is calling the Gentiles in. Those who were not beloved are becoming beloved. And to those who were told, you're not my people, they're being called the sons of the living God. And then he quotes Isaiah 10, 23 and Isaiah 28, 22. Paul believed in the word of God that what God had promised he would do, that he would save the Gentiles and make them his sons. And as he says in verse 30, this is what God's doing. He sees this through the word of God. This is what God's doing. He is allowing the Gentiles who did not go after righteousness by the law. They weren't even thinking about that. But God gave them the righteousness of the law through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith, we Gentiles have gotten everything that the Jews were trying to get by their performance, by their adherence to the law. And Paul, looking at the word of God, realizes that God saves through faith. And Jesus, God's means of salvation to the Jews had become the stumbling stone, this thing they were tripping over because they so wanted to believe that it was going to be by their performance. They, they were going to earn it. They were going to work for it. But it's through Jesus Christ. And Paul, looking at the word of God, adhering to the word of God, says it's all so clear. Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul says, I see it clearly now. I see that in Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem, that that's where the cross went. And God put that cross in the ground and said, I'm establishing right now that this and this alone is the way of salvation through faith in my son and what my son has done. And there's no other way to be saved. And some look at it and say, no, that is offensive to me. Don't you find it? Sometimes you'll, you'll say something about Jesus and they'll go, that's offensive to me. Yeah. Is it also a stumbling block? Do you also trip over it? Like, what, why are these Christians believing this stuff? You see, Paul's heart became more and more like Jesus because, one, he appreciated God's work. He appreciated all the things that God had done. 
Next, because he apprehended or he understood faith and the necessity of faith, the power of faith, the glory of faith. Next, he accepted God's ways, that they're superior, that my understanding's inferior. I don't know. I, you know, I don't have a bird's eye view. And then he adhered to God's word. Again, God's word was his authority, his perception, and his direction. To cultivate a heart like Jesus, we've got to become intentional. We've got to become intentional as believers. And the first way we become intentional is we've got to start taking inventory of all that God has done for us. We need appreciation. You know, it says in Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know, people go, what's the will of God? What's the will of God? Well, you know what? It starts with giving thanks. <laughs> Just start there and take inventory of all that you have. I mean, think you're in a covenant with God. You've got the promises of God. We, we've got so much. We've got God's blessing, God's work in our life and all the things that God is doing. We've got Jesus who became a man who died for our sins, then we need to apprehend faith. You need to understand, you know, faith is so great because it puts us all on level ground, doesn't it? When we get rid of performance and we realize that nobody is saved by heritage or by the works that they've done, all of a sudden we have hope for all men and all women. We're just like, just accept Jesus. He can change your life. You know what? When you look at Paul and how he was saved, and as he says to Peter in 2 Timothy um, chapter 1, he says, I was the chief of sinners. You know, and, and God put me first. And so that everyone would look at me and say, if God can save Paul, he can save anybody. Have you ever said that? I was reading a book, Killing Christians by Tom Doyle. It's, it's more uplifting than it sounds. And in that book, he talks about the, this man who had been ISIS, and his father was the regional head of ISIS. And this young man gets saved, and he becomes this evangelist in Iraq. And then he goes back to his city. Everyone tells him not to go back, and he says, no, I'm going back, and I'm going to die for Jesus. And his father executes him in the middle of town, in front of everybody, because his father finds him. And before his father executes him, he says, let it be known that I love Jesus and I love you, Father. And he dies. But he knew he was going to die. And he went back there with just this glory and this, this willingness and, uh, to give this witness for Jesus Christ. And you know, that's what happens. You're like, wow, God can save anyone. God can save that father. Don't you know that's going to haunt that father? That's my vengeance side. But we apprehend, we apprehend faith. When we recognize our own undeservedness, I did not deserve all this great stuff that God has done for me, not one iota of it. Then we have hope for all men and we begin to love mankind like Jesus loves them. Oh, it's faith and you can be transformed by faith. Then we need to accept God's will and ways. There are times that we're gonna come up to the word of God and we're not gonna like his scripture. Honestly, you're not going to like a story in the Bible. And you have to go, you know what? I wasn't there. And God, you know everything from the end <laughs> to the very beginning. You know everything and you know the heart of man. And your ways are superior because I am finite. My wisdom is finite. 
my um, understanding is finite, my sight is finite. There's only so much I can see, only so much I can do. But God knows everything. And so when we admit our own ignorance, and when we don't understand, we acquiesce to God and realize that God is sovereign, God is wise, God has all understanding, and he is great, greater than all, then we can say, not my will, but yours be done. And finally, we need to be intentional about adhering to God's word, that God's word will become the authority for what we do, that God's word will become the perception through which we see everything, and God's word will become the direction of our life. We read about the church of Philadelphia in Revelation, that it only had a little strength, and yet they're commended by Jesus Christ because he said, you have held fast to my word. You know, as we adhere to the word of God, we are cultivating a heart like Jesus. So we need to become more intentional in our appreciation of all that God has done, taking inventory of apprehending, God, help me to understand faith, what it is in the glory of faith, in accepting God's will, of getting to those places, marking places in our life, not my will, but yours be done. I accept this as part of your will, even though I don't understand it. I accept it because you know what heaven looks like, and I don't. And adhering, holding fast to his word. The world needs to see Jesus. They've seen the imitation. The world needs to hear Jesus. They've heard the substitutes. The world needs to feel Jesus. They need to know what he's like. And only as we become more like Jesus, as we are conformed more into the image of that glorious Son of God, will the world be able to see Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, you are the epistle of Jesus Christ. You are written by the pen of the Holy Spirit and you are read by men. To some were the knowledge of God leading to salvation and to others we are the aroma of death leading to death. And who is sufficient for these things? Only by the grace of God as we begin to cultivate the heart of Jesus by appreciation, apprehension of faith, acceptance of God's will, and adherence to his word, may the potter have a free hand with us to do what he wants to do with us, and that's to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants us all to be more and more like Jesus. So let's let our great potter, who is good, infinitely good, who knows the beginning from the end, have his way in us. You want to stand up? Lord, this morning, as you know, Father, you are showing me how much you love your people and how much you want to bless us, Lord. And we thank you that you foreknew us And because you foreknew us, you predestined us. And because you predestined us, Lord, you called us. And because you called us, you justified us. And because you justified us, Lord, you've got a plan for glorifying us. 
And Lord, I pray that we would give you as the potter the free hand to work in our life. Help us to accept those things that we don't understand, knowing that they are coming from the hand of a gracious designer who has the best intentions and the greatest love and affection for us, Lord, that we might just trust you more. So, Father, I ask you to bless these, your women, to make your face shine upon them, to give them peace. Lord, I pray that they might have a greater appreciation for all that you've done. Lord, that my girlfriends here, Lord, might apprehend faith and the glory of it, truly know it. Lord, that my girlfriends might accept your will and adhere to your word. We, I ask this for the greater blessing as you conform these most precious women into the glorious image of your son. We thank you for this time this morning. Bless, protect, go before these, your beloved, in Jesus' name. Amen.